0: The Giles Files is sponsored by BetterHelp, affordable, professional online therapy from any device, text, chat, and video. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with a BetterHelp therapist. And here's a special offer for Giles Files listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Giles that's betterhelp.com slash gilesfiles. And thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. He's got the voice of a smooth jazz DJ and a musical background that can connect the dots from Mahler to Motown and Beethoven to Bugs Bunny. Mm -hmm. He's Terrence McKnight, the nighttime host on New York City's classical WQXR. Terrence opened our eyes and ears to the diversity that is classical music, and he shook the dust off its highbrow, stuffy traditions. I asked him about that by referencing, what else? A favorite sitcom character. One of my favorite episodes of The Mary Tyler Moore Show, because I loved Rhoda Morgenstern, was Phyllis was this very um, uber European. Her husband's name was Lars. Everything she did was kind of lofty and larger than life. And at one point she had an extra ticket. And for some reason, Rhoda Morgenstern got to go with her to a classical music concert. And Phyllis was like, I couldn't bear it. And Rhoda's like, What? I was, I was snapping my fingers. What's the big deal? So <laughs> there is a difference, you know, between how those audiences react and how other people react. Being this exclusionary music that was for the the gentry and not the hoi polloi.
1: One thing that, when you look at classical music, Western European classical music, particularly um, classical music, so that period from you know, 1750 until around 1830, it was all about restraint, balance, elegance, beauty, symmetry. And so those things that fell outside of that weren't considered classical. I mean, because really in Europe, it belonged to, you know, people of a certain status. And so when Americans came here, white Americans looking for liberty, they wanted to bring that art with them, but some sort of democracy around that. But the right. democracy had its limitations, you know. And so the challenge for our community becomes how do we place value in our own culture? Yeah. What makes us want to support the art- artistry of William Brent Still or Marianne Anderson? I think, you know, part of the calculus has to be, you know, just education and right. telling their stories. And what we're doing right here on this podcast Moors conquered Spain. They brought all their instruments, their dances, they brought everything. And so when the Moors were pushed out of Spain, what they brought was reappropriated, called something else. Mm. They called the instruments something else. They called the dances something else. And as those dances went around Europe, they took on a French name or an Italian name or a Spanish name. But this was Moorish, you know, Moorish culture. And maybe if our people knew that we were at the Mm. root this art form, that we were in the orchestras of, you know, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, you know, maybe if they knew about the Symphony of the New World in the 1960s, and we had Black conductors, you know, maybe that would remove this idea of this is a white art form, or this is a white instrument, or that's a white expression, you know, and I think that has really gotten in the way of the avenues opening up for us. And it needs to be, it needs to be wide open. We can play Bach and Haydn, but we can play Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and we can play, you know, Florence Price and we can do it all because we're human. this composer, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. That's a whole interesting story. His music was banned by Napoleon. This dude was the go-to artist of Marie Antoinette, and uh, he brought Haydn to Paris. You know, Haydn was working in for this court, you know, in Austria, and Boulogne had this big orchestra in Paris, he had big funding for it. And Haydn was the big deal in Austria. So he invited Haydn to come to Paris and write these symphonies for the Paris market. Haydn gets there and he's like, oh my God, this is the biggest orchestra I've ever seen. And he wrote six symphonies and Joseph conducted these symphonies. That was, you know, that was a big deal. But he joined the French revolution and started his own regiment. And this dude's just super, super talented. And when he died, you know, and Napoleon brought slavery back to the islands, um, he banned his music uh, for his <laughs> involvement in the revolution. Kicking yeah.
0: arms up against Napoleon is going to get you banned. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's become known again until maybe, I don't know, what, 30 years ago, maybe. Wow. He was bigger than Mozart. They lived at the same time. I mean, he was what 11 years older than Mozart. He was, you know, Mozart got to Paris. Mozart was looking for a job. You know, he was 20, 21 years old. And, you know, Boulogne's, you know, posters were all up over the place. And people, uh, the aristocrats really loved his music. Mozart was trying to be heard, you know, by the very person who was supporting Boulogne. So, you know, naturally he's gonna, you know, it's like everybody wants to play like LeBron. (laughs) <laughs> I'm completely out. I got to know what But
0: It's true. But it's totally true. Right, right, right.
1: You know, beefing up just a little bit, a little faster, a little stronger. Right, a lot right. of deep heads like Braun. So right. yes, he, uh, Mozart, I'd imagine he wanted to emulate uh, Joseph Belong to it.
0: you do your wonderful show you're telling us stuff in this like really hilarious and and deep way and expanding certainly my knowledge of a lot, a lot of people of color that have been involved in classical music from the beginning so is there a, are you writing a book is there a documentary you just finished a book right
1: i'm um, i hope my publisher isn't listening he's going <laughs> to you be writing i'm working <laughs> on a book good um, i've been working on it for uh, almost 2 years now it's called concert black you know, it's a play on the word that, you know, when orchestral musicians go on stage, they say we're wearing concert black, or if you're in a choir, we're wearing concert black, you know, what are we wearing? What's the uniform? What are we, what's the attire? Concert black, you know, just all black, but, you know, underneath that costume, that attire, there are lots of layers of, of stuff, you know, and, but there's also opportunity for us to, to wear this uniform and to be able to um, express the culture uh, just as human beings. So I'm looking at uh, Black musicians who've been involved in the art form over the last, you know, 600, 500 oh. years.
0: Fabulous. Um, but
1: it's not, it's, you know, it's not a comprehensive book on Blacks and classical music. It looks at sort of the the tendencies, um, a general sh- sort of approach to how we've participated in the art form. But I interview some folks um, that are alive now, a lot of them are in their nineties, eighties, this first generation of black uh, artists who came out of uh, the Harlem Renaissance, Mm -hmm. you know, who who came out of this period where um, Jim Crow still didn't allow them to, uh, to play in the South. For example, I spoke with a composer, whose husband was the first black player in the Cleveland Orchestra. He got hired in 57. Oh, well, when Donald White joined the Cleveland Orchestra as cellist, um, the conductor, George Zell, who was a you know big deal in Cleveland, passed a form out to all the musicians asking if they would be okay with a black man in the orchestra. Everyone signed the form saying that it was okay except for one player.
0: Why did he do that? Wait, wait, what? And then what happened to that one player?
1: Well, as the cellist wife told me, she said it didn't really matter because George Zell was God and whatever he said, if he wanted somebody to play, they Uh played, but he just passed out that form. I don't know why she said we learned this years later.
0: Okay. This was
1: 1957.
0: That's right. Oh, that's okay. Maybe that's fascinating. I I was kind of hoping the end of the story was not that one player was fired by George Zell or something like that.
1: So the challenge in classical music now is to open its arms and stop navel-gazing at Western European classical music and be willing to, you know, demonstrate it all as beautiful and not this hierarchy. There is no audience for strictly Western European classical music. That audience is, is fading. Mm-hmm. There is more ground to be covered when we look at you know, classical music from the West African tradition and from, from the uh, Japanese tradition or the South Korean tradition and from the Islamic tradition. When we bring all of these classical traditions together, I think that that's powerful. When we look at somebody like Ravi Shankar and what he did for with Indian classical music, you know, I've got some griots that I talked to, some West African griots mm-hmm. whose music, you know, their study goes back 10, 12 generations.
0: You know, when I think about how things used to be, the exclusivity that goes with classical music. But then at the same time, here I am loving Motown music and hearing strings through all of that stuff, beautiful string sections. I don't know if you did you see the documentary Hitsville, The Making of Motown? What was fascinating was one of the guys that's there who ended up being an A&R guy. He had grown up in Detroit and went to Detroit public schools. And those kids got to see a lot of orchestral concerts, a lot of classical concerts, and he loved classical music. He wasn't even into R&B, but that knowledge that they added that in a lot of their stuff, I I, I love that kind of mix. That just really, um, that excites me. You know, what can I say? Like hearing harps or hearing like pizzicato listen baby ain't no mountain high ain't no valley low ain't no river wide enough and then Tammy comes if you need me call me no matter where you are no matter how far here comes the harp again Just call my name, I'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry. They're both coming together. And now, ain't no mountain high enough. Isn't that beautiful? The strings keep building while the chorus goes on. Chorus, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. Now, we've got a whole nother phrase. Second chorus, remember the day I set you free? I told you you could always count on me, boy. And that day on, I made a vow. I'll be there when you want me. That's so dramatic with those high strings in there. like i'm down and i i played viola when i was a kid and i know that part of my attraction to orchestras i won't lie bugs bunny bugs bunny taught me the hungarian rhapsody you know (laughs) i i mean now what would you say to that
1: list never heard of him wrong number I mean long long one of the busiest pianists uh. Uh, in the world today that's how he started bugs bunny I mean he long long said he was three years old and uh <laughs> he said he would listen to those cartoons and um, he tried would try and go to the piano and do what he heard and he was able to do it to a degree that he ended up, his father ended up taking him to a school outside of their town. Hall. It was those cartoons that turned him on to the music.
0: I, and that is really great. I love that, that, you know, there are these little things that get snuck in, just like how they make vegetables into French fries, but that's totally off topic. Look, one hand. no hands. There's that expression, if you see it, you can be it. I didn't really see people of color in classical music when I was growing up. A few, Marion Anderson, Leontine Price, stuff like that. But um, that didn't stop me from being interested in it. And I, I played viola for uh, about 10 years and was pretty good. So what about you? Like, did you see it and that made you want to be it? Or where did the interest come from?
1: Well, I grew up uh, in church playing piano. And, um, you know, I took a lot of music lessons and I, you know, had like four different church jobs. I had a Lutheran church. I had an AME church. I had a Pentecostal church. I had a Baptist church. And all of these uh, uh, churches had different sort of musical expressions. But the one thing that seemed to um, be true in all of them was that music was that opportunity that just brought people together in a different way. And they were able to participate and sing together. And I was really moved by that. And um, when I got to college, I had to sort of figure out what I wanted to do with music, uh, what kind of music I wanted to pursue. And when I joined the Glee Club at Morehouse, what I experienced was singing in Yoruba, singing in Italian, singing in German, singing spirituals. And all of these Black men were doing all of this music all together on the same stage. And it was just powerful. And then one of my instructors came into class one day with an article on Kathleen Battle. And he came in with an article on, on Went Marsalis. And it was just powerful what he was talking about. Wynton, I think he, had, he hadn't been in New York that long. And so my professor said to me, you know, you can have a powerful voice too. You know, you just got to work hard. Hmm. You, can, you can have an opinion too. You just got to read and get one. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that's true. You got to get one. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, um, yeah, he's right about that. So let me get an opinion. Let me, let me like work hard. Then one of my professors gave me a ticket to see the Atlanta symphony. And on that same program, Andre Watts was playing piano. Wow. I walked into the hall and, you know, Watts came out and he started playing and I thought he was improvising. I didn't know what was going on because whatever he was doing, it seemed like it came from his soul. this isn't jazz. I'm looking at the program and I'm like, this doesn't really make sense. Cause I mean, the piece started off, I think it started off solo. He had this big solo in the beginning. And I thought, what in the world is he doing? But whatever it is, this is my world. This is where I feel comfortable in this sound, in this environment where people are like directly focused on this man and and what he's saying musically. And um, in that moment, I decided that, you know, I wanted to pursue classical music. So I pursued Andre Watts and um, I mean, just followed his career, followed him, you know, whenever he showed up in town, I was there, you know, trying to sneak into concerts. And that was, you know, I uh, did a show with Watts a couple of years ago. I invited him as a guest and, you know, we had conversation at Merkin Hall and he played and I told the story of one of the times where I've experienced Black privilege mm-hmm. was going to see Watts because, you know, when you show up at the artist into the green room, people sort of assume that you know him because right. there aren't many Black folks showing up at that door. So they would just let me in. <laughs> so <laughs> I would go backstage and, you know, look at me like, I just can't get back here, you know. No matter where I am, this dude is showing up. He's backstage. And so he became someone that I became close to. And what, uh, you know, I was in graduate school at the time and he listened to my, you know, graduate program and he was just someone that I aligned myself with. And um, it allowed me to, to make some strides in classical music. It kind of demonstrated to me that I, there was a place for me. I mean, he was just one, there were others, you know, composers who I buddied up to, you know, George Walker was someone who I met in Atlanta. He said to me, um, If you ever have a question about music or anything you're working on, call me, here's my number. And so for me, having these Black men, you know, that I could talk to and call and share with and learn from, that was important for me to get into the uh, room. at Georgia State, I had a teacher who said something in a lesson that just opened another door for me. I was playing Rachmaninoff. That's good. He said, that's good. He said, but you play it like you don't really get it, like it's not yours. And he said, all of these preludes you're playing, man, it's about love. And it's really about love making. He said, and it's not about Russian love or French love or Italian love. This is a human expression. This is a, an emotion. You know, it's it's human. It's it's beyond any culture, man. And he said, I want you to go home and look at it and I want you to create a graph for, for all of these pieces and tell me where the most powerful intimacy is in this piece. And I couldn't wait to get home. Oh. <laughs> and he, flipped it. he flipped it and took it out of, it was no longer Rachmaninoff, but it was about my own ideas about this idea of love and passion. And so I was able to make it mine. Mm -hmm. And he said, because once you do that, you'll play it in a way that nobody else plays it because nobody else experiences this the way you do as a human being. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything for me.
0: You mentioned uh, Kathleen Battle and um, Wynton Marsalis. Their duet, Baroque duet, that was like a phenomenon. Like every Black person I knew who didn't know anything about classical had that CD.
1: I used to drive through wherever I was, blasting that record, man. <laughs> and uh, it was a game changer. I mean, you know, you know, Wynton had recorded some uh, a Haydn, uh, concerto when he was pretty young, but that was the first time I'd seen him uh, bring his jazz aesthetic, you know, to classical music in that way. And when he was, and he and Kathleen, it it was just sensational. It's important that I think when our young people learn this music and um, they're supported and they're not told that it belongs to someone else. You know, when you go into uh, into an environment, uh, whether it's a church environment or a school environment and you have that sort of nurturing, I think it starts at home, but it has to extend beyond home where you have support saying that you can do that and it's yours. I think the teaching It's so important because oftentimes when our students, you know, get to that all state level or a particular level, they go and they're like one of a few. I did a gig with the Philharmonic, a young people's concert a few years ago. I think it was 2019.
0: So they still have young people's concerts? They still do? Oh, that's That's great. great.
1: And the guy who heads those up is a, a New Yorker, a black man named Gary Patmore. And Gary Patmore is the director of education over there. And he puts together those young people's concerts and they're they're important. So they do a lot more work these days um, around Black composers.
0: Excellent. That's great to hear. Tell us about the Harlem Chamber Players.
1: Yeah. Harlem Chamber Players is a group that started in uh, 2008. And they reached out to me and invited me to uh, host a, a concert concert. Oh, uh, at a small church where they got started. Uh, the founder was Liz Player and she just had a heart of gold and just loved people and she wanted to use music to bring people together and she liked what I was talking about on the radios. So I began introducing into the Harlem Chamber Players all of these Black composers. And so then we started doing Black uh, History Month shows and now, um, you know, it's it's our bread and butter. And so what I wanted to do was not to be exclusive. you know, I wanted to you know, I took that lesson from my teacher and it's a very integrated orchestra. We accept you know folks who can play. and we like to be able to say that we um, bring a high quality music in the neighborhood where we live. and so our community don't have to go down to the big halls in New York City, just to hear orchestral music. It had, we take it to the Schoenberg. we take it to the Harlem School of the Arts, we take it to Harlem Theater, you know, and um, not only that, but we partner with organizations up, uptown as well. So it's become a, a, a great ensemble over the last 10 years.
0: By the way, congratulations! Because you got uh, let's see, New York Public Radio got an NEA grant, and it was, it's kind of your grant. It's from what I read to help its classical radio station, WQXR, and its host Terrence McKnight tell stories about overlooked artists in classical music. So congratulations, and I'm glad it's forty grand. I wish it was forty million, but. If this is exactly what you're doing is bringing those stories to people. And I, I think that's wonderful. Were you excited yeah. when you got the, did the check, was it made out to Terrence McKnight or to cash? <laughs> I'm just wondering how that went. Did they, did they zelly you? Zelly? You know? How did that go? Well, that's our show. Thanks to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Join the two million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with a BetterHelp therapist. And remember, as a special offer to Giles Files listeners, you'll get 10% off of your first month if you use the code BetterHelp.com/GilesFiles. That's BetterH.E.L.P.com/GilesFiles. And a big thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Special thanks to our guest Terrence McKnight. Give your ears a treat and check out Evenings with Terrence McKnight weeknights at 7 p.m. on WQXR, New York's classical radio station. Follow him on Twitter at McKnight3000 for updates on what he's up to. Whether he's curating a concert or giving a lecture or hosting a special program, you won't want to miss it. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt and recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. Be sure to check out The Giles Files on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and write us a review. Tell us what you think. We want to hear from you. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Giles Files. Okay?